Praise the Lord, door of hope, Northeast. <laughs> I'm Vivian Parker, and I'm going to read the first scripture this morning. I'm so excited. This is the awesome scripture, one of the awesome scriptures. And so um, I want you to help me, though. Twice, there's an opportunity for all of us to say three words, and that is, praise the Lord. Can you do that? Yeah. When, I, when I raise my hand, let's all say, praise the Lord. At the beginning and at the end, we have a chance to say that, and we'll say it so that the angels in heaven can hear it, okay? <clears throat> Amen. Psalm 146. Okay, here we go. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom for prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise, Praise the Lord. Lord. <laughs> how, would you, how do you answer this question? In your heart of hearts, in your heart of hearts, and don't just say Jesus or whatever. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's say in our moments of weakness, maybe our moments of less clarity, our more common moments. How would you answer this question? If only blank could happen, then everything would be okay. In your life, or in your friends' lives, your family, our city, our country, our world, if only blank would happen, everything would be okay. How do you fill that in? Or, if only blank was in power, if we could only get so-and-so to be able to make the decisions, then everything would be okay. Really think. Put something in there. However you answer these questions, it's a window. It's a good indicator of where your ultimate trust and your ultimate hope lies. Um... And what this psalm is going to help us see, that Vivian just read for us, is that, is that whatever you said there, and this is the most pastorly thing I could possibly say I recognize, but we're going we're to argue for it. Whatever you said there, it is a false hope 
unless the answer truly is in your heart of hearts at the bottom, right when you get down to it in the moment of crisis, in the moment of desperation, if your answer isn't Jesus. Why? The Psalm's going to tell us because whatever it is, whatever other thing you could put in there, it won't last. It won't last. And at first blush, some of us could, you know, when, upon reflection, like be led to fear or despair or whatever, but Jesus is real. We're going to argue. This isn't just a nice thing we get here to do on Sunday mornings. It might be, for some of us, it might be preferable to go get some brunch or whatever, sleep in a little bit. But we're here to proclaim something we believe is actual truth rooted in real history, rooted in uh, verifiable eyewitness accounts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's risen from the dead and he sits on an eternal throne that he's going to come back and reign on one day. Today we're finishing our series, uh, Feeling and Praying with the Psalms, which we've been in now. I think, I guess this is, nah, I should have looked it up, huh? Seventh or eighth week that we're in now. Uh, this is the last one. And, and this, this psalm, Psalm 146, it kicks off the conclusion of the psalms. Um, the, the, the last five psalms, most scholars agree, form like a formal conclusion to the book. It's five psalms that all begin and end, or, or they at least all begin with that declaration, praise the Lord. And so whoever finally, as the psalms were being written, we talked about this over hundreds of years. The psalms date back super old. Some of them attributed to Moses, and of course David, a bunch of random authors, some unknown authors, a long span. And then sometime after the exile, they were, they were compiled into the form that we have them in now. And whoever those spirit-led compilers were, they opted to put a five-part praise at the end of the book. We're going to talk about why. But the psalms end on this note, five psalms in a row of pervasive joy and celebration and praise of God. And that kicks off with Psalm 146, which Vivian just read for us. It, it starts with that, that verse 1 and 2, a call to praise. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praises to my God while I have my being. The Hebrew behind that praise the Lord is hallelujah, which I'm sure you don't have to be around a church, church too long to, to have heard that before, the Hebrew. Hallelujah, praise Yah, praise the Lord. It's this dramatic exclamation of praise. It's a command to praise, and you find it 23 times across the Psalms. And as we've been in this series, and I mentioned this last week, that the bulk of what we've been talking about is what we might call the difficult emotions. This, this whole thing has been from the angle of, in the Psalms, we find these radical accounts of people feeling basically every, every kind of deep emotion you can think of, from crushing anger to fear to anxiety to grief, whatever. And, and they're things that we're uncomfortable with, often, especially as Christians, we don't really know what to do with them. But in the Psalms, we find people modeling for us how to bring any of those, any and every of those feelings into relationship with God and to lay them honestly, even, even uglyly. Is that a word? How, how would you say that? Uh, uglyly. <laughs> with ugliness at the foot of the Lord. Some of these Psalms we've read that we've taught through, you read them and we're like, oh my gosh, can you say that? Not even just in the Bible, can you say that? Can you just say that as a human? Is that okay to say? And the Psalms repeatedly bring us to this reality that God is interested in, in the real you, 
He's not interested in you pretending in your piety to be feeling things that you're not or to not be feeling things that you are. He wants all of you. And it's only then that they find kind of their healthy resolution and satisfaction. So we've looked at these more difficult feelings. And then last week, we, we kind of turned the corner into talking about Thanksgiving. And this week, we're talking about praise. Or we could, or we could say joy. Joy bubbling over into praise. And in our age of, of sort of authenticity, like authenticity is such a buzzy word. You know, everybody's striving to be authentic, even on social media or whatever. Um, we, often, we often equate that with sort of like, um, sort of talking about sad or hard things. And that's true. I mean, you can be horribly inauthentic by saying everything's always great all the time. Don't really struggle. Don't have any problems. Don't really sin. Don't really have doubts. Don't really have problems with anything. Yeah, that's certainly not authentic to, to put that kind of image forward. But there's also like this angle where it, at least for me, I don't know if you feel this, but if you're really feeling joyful on a given day, really feeling happy, really feeling excited, you almost feel weird sharing that. Like, man, if I just am honest about the fact that this is a joyful season for me, I feel like it will invite suspicion. Where people will be like, yeah, but what's really going on? You know? And I don't know why that is, but I do know that the joy, praising of God, your heart overflowing where you just have to exclaim praise back to him, sometimes met with like, yeah, boy, is that real? Is that, is that sincere? The scriptures command us time and time again to be people of joy. And I don't think we're meant to hide that joy. And I think the Psalms, you take this whole book of the Psalms with this diversity of experiences together, I think it's teaching us as a whole collection that you don't have to disregard the presence of hard things to in a moment to be able to have joy and to be able to celebrate and to be able to praise. The Psalms are not saying squash your anger down. They're saying you you can have the deepest joy imaginable right next to your anger. You can. Maybe yesterday you were in tears, but today you're in joy. Maybe today you're in joy, and tomorrow you're going to be at the lowest point of your life. I don't know. I hope not, but I don't know. But that's possible for the Christian. It has been, it has been for millennia, the Psalms show us. So I, I hope we're not afraid of praise and joy. The psalmist here tells himself, my soul, to praise God from his inner depths outward, the whole person engaged in praise. And he says he's going to praise God as long as I live, while I have my being. While he's alive and able, before he is dead and unable, is the implication, he's going to praise God. He also says he will sing God's praises. And that's just a little reminder for us of the musical nature of many of the psalms. We've talked about that. A bunch of these were intended to be sung by the choir or whatever. And it's just a reminder um, that, that there is, there is um, there's a precedent for us using music. We don't have like, you know, piano and guitar up here just arbitrarily. That, that Christian practice isn't something that like we sort of just invented in the last 50 years or something. It goes back to these ancient communities utilizing music to, to stir up their praise. It's not random. There's something about the beauty and the power of music specifically that's always been recognized by God's people as something natural and necessary, uh, a necessary part of worship. But the second we start talking about praise, I, I, I was struck by something I read in this little C.S. Lewis book. It's called Reflections on the Psalms. Some of it is really, really good. 
And Lewis was, was wrestling with this question of, it, he said before he, he came to faith, he, he always struggled with this idea when he would read like Psalms of praise, like isn't it weird that God is sitting there like demanding our praise? Like, doesn't that make him seem kind of like shallow or, or sort of weird, uh, sort of conceited or something? And so I love, this is kind of a long quote, but I, I, hope, I hope it's worth it. Here's how, here's how Lewis answers that question. He says, the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or of giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, and sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. You ever praised a rare beetle? Even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time, the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, the misfits, the malcontents praised least. The good critic found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. It's a good quote. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because our praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. End of quote. The, the point he's making, at least the second point he's making there, is that when you notice something genuinely praiseworthy, it's only natural, if you love people around you at all, to want them to experience it too. You will want them to see the beauty that you see. You'll want them to get the enjoyment that you're getting. And not only that, um, He's saying that that declaration, that sharing with others, that praise is actually part of enjoying the thing itself. I do this all, if, if you've ever had, I don't know if it's the pleasure or the displeasure of like watching a movie with me that I'm really excited about. There's this thing in our friend, friend circle called the Hagerspiel, which is like, I have to like set the scene. Like, okay, here's why this is important. And oh, you got to look for this. And oh man, the, you know, the director was really saying this. So if you can pay attention to that, you'll see this. And it, it's probably really obnoxious that people, for people that just want to watch a movie. But I think we probably all have those things. Like you get excited and you've just got to tell somebody. You've got to bring somebody into the fold on this thing. It's natural and it's fun and it's meant to be. And it is meant to be even far more so with the God of the universe, the God of the gospel. So that's praise. That's a word on praise. I think Lewis is really helpful there. Lest you were thinking like, oh, okay, Psalms of praise, really? Is God that needy of us? It may just be for our delight and our good that a large portion of that is, pres is prescribed to us. But he goes on. 
The opening is praise God, but now he's going to set up this two-way contrast, which is really the heart of the psalm. And the first half of the contrast is, is in these two verses, verses three and four. He's talking about human futility, human impotence. He says, put not your trust in princes. And I think there he just has in mind any human ruler, any human great, great person you might be tempted to trust in. Put not your trust in princes, not in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Why? We'll read verse four, because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. The psalmist is saying that, that any human you might be tempted to put your ultimate hope and trust in will ultimately disappoint you. It's a guarantee. It is a guarantee. And he doesn't say this, but one of the reasons I, we, could, we could add on here is that, is that um, at some point their limits will come to be shown. Or, or, or even more tragically, at some point sin will get the best of them and they'll hurt you. They'll disappoint you. They'll prove to be a hypocrite. They'll prove to let you down in some fundamental way. They'll prove to not be able to do the thing that they were either explicitly or implicitly promising you all along. They will let some, some will manipulate you. Some will intentionally harm you. All of these things are a tragedy. But even if not, I mean, if all people are sinful, of course, but even if someone's by most standards, oh, that's a pretty good person. And man, they loved Jesus and they were pretty faithful to him to the end. Sir, they were a sinner, but they were quick to repent. They're humble, they, you know, they served well, whatever. Even that person, if you put your ultimate trust in them, they will die and they'll leave you. No matter how good one's intention, the psalmist is saying that those intentions will come to an end when they face their inevitable demise. I love the way Josh Wyatt has always said again and again and again, it's just such a great way to put this. The death rate seems to be one per person, doesn't it? It is. Everyone dies. And this warning against trusting princes, it, it's a reminder it's a reminder that we can't trust anyone at that level. Who might people be tempted to put your trust in? I can't answer that for you. Might be a politician or a ruler. And I don't know how much hope any of you have placed in Joe Biden, for example, the president, our current president. But if it's this kind of hope, it is misplaced. It is misplaced. I don't know how much stock you put in the, <laughs> the leaders of, of Portland City government, but it's misplaced if it's any kind of ultimate trust. You're tempted to trust, maybe you're more intellectual, you've got philosophers that you read that are gonna help you unpack the meaning of the world around you. Maybe it's the artists. Maybe it's artists who have an uncanny way of penetrating and describing and helping you feel and understand alongside their art. Maybe it's your parents, your family. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's celebrities and influencers. Really hope not, but maybe it is. Maybe it's a counselor or a therapist. Do crucial work, deeply important work. They'll let you down too though. You trust them like this. Maybe it's your doctor. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your pastor. 
as your pastor, I want you to trust me so bad, and, and not, just, I, not just I want you to trust me, I want to be trustworthy to every one of you. If you come to me needing like to understand where is Jesus in a moment of crisis and struggle and anxiety at your lowest moment, I desperately want to be able to respond to you in a way that honors Christ and honors you again and again and again. That's the desire of my heart. It really is. Over time, I want to prove to be trustworthy, and I know I could say the same for Josh, our community pastor. I know I could say the same for Darren downstairs and whatever other men and women we're gonna bring onto this team to serve you. We want to be trustworthy. But don't put your final trust in me. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm not worthy of it. Whatever you do, don't trust human princes. Verse four, it's this beautiful psalmist states that man will die, his breath departs. His breath, his ruach, returning to God. He returns to the dust from which he came. It's a strong Genesis callback. Man is still under the curse from Genesis three, and this is one of the results. Everybody dies. And when, when, that, when that person dies on that day, the psalmist says, his plans perish. No matter what good intentions anybody had, they're gone. There comes a point in this life where you just can't do it anymore. Remind me of that film, Knives Out. Did y'all see that? Great, fun, kind of murder mystery movie. Premise is this kind of family patriarch. He dies, and it's kind of about the family sort of conniving to figure out who can kind of take control of his will and his assets. And there's a murder mystery in there. There's a lot going on. But it just made me think of that. Like, he left his will. And then, but he's not in control anymore. There's all these schemes playing out and people double-crossing each other, trying to get their hands on it. He has nothing to do with that. You know why? Because he's dead. He's done. Whatever he wanted to see happen, it is in the, it's in the hands of the executor of the will or whatever, or the family, like, not being complete jerks or whatever. Good luck. But if we can't ultimately trust people, where do we go? Where do we look? Well, it's church, all right? It's going to be obvious, but let's read. Verses 5 through 9. It says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free, the oppressed... (coughs) Sorry. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In these verses, the psalmist gives us the other half of the contrast. Don't trust people. They will fail you, but there is a God who is, we see here, the character and the nature and the power and the eternity of our God, the God of Jacob, which is a reminder of the the God of deep faithfulness to this small people in ancient Israel. We can trust in this God who is this way, according to the psalmist. We see that he's powerful in verse six. He's the creator, the creator of heaven and earth. He's even the powerful over the sea, which in, in, in the Bible and in, to the ancient world was just this image of like unstoppable chaos that basically has only danger in store for you. He's God even over that. 
He can even tame the sea. He's powerful over it because he created it. And as well as everything that populates heaven, earth, and the sea, he is over it all. And not only is he powerful, but he keeps faith forever. He doesn't leave them to their own devices, but he lovingly cares for all that he's made. And then verses seven through nine go on, I think with examples of what it looks like that he is the one who keeps faith forever. And what does it look like? He is just. Are you oppressed? His heart is with you. He will bring justice. Are you hungry? He gives food. You in prison, he sets you free. Are you blind? He gives you sight. Are you bowed down in humility? He lifts you up. He loves the righteous. Are you the sojourner, or in our language, the stranger, the immigrant? He watches over you. He cares. Are you a widow? He upholds you. Are you a fatherless? He upholds you. This is who God is. Even verse 9, last half. And the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And we've talked about this, this has come up multiple times in this series, but you know, we think about the, just, the judging of God, the justice of God from this angle, and often we th- respond to it with fear. But his point is that the evil are not going to get away with it forever. He's not the kind of God who looks at the deep injustice of the world, which, by the way, you and I are all complicit in by virtue of our sin. So don't think that's wholly outside of you. It's inside of you, and it's inside of me. But he looks at the evil of the world, and he says, I will stop it. It will end. And what a nightmare it would be if he wasn't like that. For all his love, mercy, compassion, he doesn't let evil go on forever. It's not left unchecked. Just when you could suspect that maybe the character of God would tilt that way, if you read this psalm, he brings you right back. He says, no, he's also, he's not only infinitely merciful, but he's also perfectly just. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? I mean, think of, think of our prince, think of our politicians. Is that not what everyone is clamoring for in the streets? Like, we want this and we want it now. But they're trusting in princes to bring it. Who can't? And even if they might be able to, kind of, they're going to die. Who's going to replace them? I don't know. Someone else who will die. Maybe good, maybe bad, they're going to die also. good thing that the God of the universe who places that desire in the human heart says, I am it. I'm its fulfillment. I'm the one who can actually do it. It's not a pipe dream. It's not something that we just fantasize about. It's real. It's rooted into the one who presides over reality itself. That's who he is. That's good news. And it's faithfulness and it's justice on his terms, under his definitions, because there's no other place to get them but from the creator God of the universe. And that will frustrate many, but it is the truth nonetheless. It's genuine justice. It's genuine faithfulness. It's genuine goodness. And as we've said so many times, how do you, how do you merge this infinitely just and this infinitely merciful God? You just look to the cross. It's always the answer. Where he's not willing to wave away sin. He's willing to pour out everything necessary on that sin in the person of Jesus on the cross. 
his justice coming down in the very same moment that it's mercy being poured out on all who would receive it. How do we merge these ideas together? Do you just look at Jesus hanging there in our place? And all of this, this, this section of, of Psalm 146, doesn't it sound so much like Isaiah? I, I don't know if you remember this story. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us when Jesus began his public ministry, he goes into the synagogue, I believe, and he picks up the Isaiah scroll and he reads chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 to begin his ministry. Here's what Jesus read when he started. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me beginning uh, because... The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's who Jesus is. He, <laughs> there, when you look at Jesus, and we're going to get back to the Gospel of Mark, and we have a lot of time to look at Jesus in the months ahead. You see the one prince you can trust. The only man to perfectly embody the character and essence of God. He is the Son of God. He's God with us. He's God made flesh. What does God look like? Though he was revealed by the prophets and in various ways, he's now been revealed in Son, Hebrews tells us. What is God like? Look at Jesus. He is the only one who won't fall into hypocrisy but can be absolutely trusted. He's the one man who does all of this, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, who lifts up those who are bowed down, who loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners, upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That's Jesus. And not only that, not only does he love them and, and do these things from kind of a disconnected, separated position, but the way he did this was by becoming the oppressed, becoming hungry, becoming imprisoned, humbling himself on the cross, both identifying in the most powerful terms with these people, becoming one of them himself. And taking it on that finally no one else has to live into eternity future with those things. He brings freedom from it all. He brings the answer to every one of those dilemmas. And he died like all men. Do all men die? Yes, they do. Even Jesus died. But three days later, he was raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of the new creation. He appeared to many witnesses. He's the first fruits of the new creation that God promises to bring. Blessed is the one who trusts this prince, Jesus. In this king, King Jesus, there is no one else worthy of your trust. But he is infinitely worthy of it. And if that is true, then we can move into verse 10, which says, the Lord will reign forever. We know that is God, but that is also God the Son who is gonna sit on the eternal throne of David as king and again, not, the, the, go read Revelation 21. This isn't overly spiritualized. He is, going, he is coming back. That is the meaning of the second coming of Christ. We are going to see him with our own eyes, and he is going to reign as that kind of king. Never to fall, never to falter, never to get corrupted, never to become a hypocrite like you or I would. 
he's going to reign. There's a white horse involved too. So when we, when the psalm, the psalm ends with something incredibly powerful. When we say that God will reign as king forever, we mean that God. We mean the truly beautiful one, the truly powerful one, the self-giving one we see most clearly hanging on a cross in our stead. He will rule and he will reign forever. And how do we respond to this good news? What do we do with the unique joy that this produces with us? We praise God. Let's do what Divian said. Praise God. Hallelujah. This is our hope. This is our hope. So as we end our time in the Psalms, I just want to leave you with a few challenges. One, use the Psalms. Like, I hope you've gotten a taste. We've only looked at a handful. It's 150 poems, 150 songs, 150, like, sort of stories of people wrestling with God through, through all of these different things. They cover a staggering range of human emotion and they model how to come to God in each situation. If you don't have a habit of reading and praying through the Psalms, I encourage you to build it into your Bible reading time. Maybe read, read a Psalm a day or a Psalm a week or I don't know, a few Psalms a month, whatever it is. Make yourself come back to these and sit under these, sit with these. And if you don't have Bible reading time, maybe just start with a Psalm a day. That's a great thing to do. Just that. Start there. And then we would just say again, a second, a second application for this whole series is bring your whole self to God. The Psalms have repeatedly shown us God gets no pleasure from us pretending. He gets no pleasure from us acting. He gets no pleasure from us saying the thing we think we're supposed to say or feel. He doesn't get any joy from us performing religious attitudes. He wants the real full you every time you come to him. So don't be afraid. And I preach that to myself before I preach it to any of you. Cameron, don't be afraid to be honest with God. Don't be afraid. Trust that his love and grace is big enough to handle whatever you bring him and there is no healthier place for your most extreme feelings and circumstances than in conversation with him, the living God. So we mentioned this before. The Psalms are arranged in their final order on purpose. And this this blew my mind when a, a commentator pointed out to me. I wasn't sharp enough to see it myself. The ending of the book of Psalms, this five-part praise, chapters 146 to 150, it reminds us of something incredibly powerful and incredibly hopeful. The fact that the Psalms, after all the pain and anger and frustration and grief and joy and sadness, after this whole crazy amalgamation of human ugliness that's like chronicled throughout, throughout these 145 chapters, 145 poems. It ends quite intentionally on a string of unbroken praise. Why? As a reminder, as a reminder that that will be your story. <laughs> If you are in Christ, if you've trusted him, if you've bent the knee to Jesus, whatever hardships you have faced in this life and are going to face, God promises a day is coming, quoting Revelation 21.4, where he will wipe away every tear from your eye. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
the burdens of living with sin in a sin-stained world will be gone and there will be an eternity of life to live, but it will be restored, redeemed, transformed, comforted, joyful, celebratory life marked by praise. The hope that Christianity offers, and I want to say this as clearly as I can because for some reason we have a hard time getting this. Christianity does not offer you the hope of a pain-free life here. And if you hear someone preaching that constantly, I would advise you to stop listening to them. Christianity does not offer you the hope of a struggle-free life in the here and now, a pain-free life, a tragedy-free life. In fact, it it teaches us to expect just the opposite. In this life, you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. You will have trouble. We should all expect to suffer. And I know so many of you have. Probably all of you have. But we can expect more, (laughs) tragically. That is not the hope the Bible offers, but it does promise in no uncertain terms a coming age when every struggle, every pain, every tragedy will become an increasingly distant memory. We will look back on them from the vantage point of having had our tears wiped by the hand of God itself. No tears, no death, no mourning, wiped away once and for all by the loving hand of God. And so I think it's true to say that in any moment when we experience genuine joy in this life, which there will be joys too, there should be a lot of joy for you, especially if you're in Christ. If we have eyes to see it, it is a foretaste of our constant and consistent reality that's going to come in the new creation. Every time your heart overflows in the here and now, that's a foretaste of heaven, of life in the new heavens and the new earth, to be cherished and celebrated, to remind you of something you haven't even experienced yet, but is coming. As sure as Jesus walked out of the tomb, it's coming. So may we relish our moments of joy and not be self-conscious about celebrating. May we relish those moments of joy and celebration and may may every one of them become pointers to the true source of all lasting joy, King Jesus. Uh, Commentator Derek Kidner put it this way, five joyous psalms of praise, each of them beginning and ending with hallelujah, bring the Psalter to a close. So in this respect, as in many others, the Psalms are a miniature of our story as a whole, which will end in unbroken blessing and delight. In this way, the whole book of Psalms points us to the great hope we have in Jesus, the hope of all things made right under him, the King. That's good news, I think. How about you? Yeah. Let's pray.